Well, welcome to the Deep in Scripture podcast. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. I'm joined today by my associate, Jim Anderson. Good afternoon, everyone. This podcast is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International, and uh, we're embarking on a new series of Deep in Scripture programming focusing on hard verses. And in each episode, I'll generally interview a member of the Coming Home Network about some scripture verse that they consider or would have considered hard or difficult to understand, particularly given their previous tradition. And then we'll talk about how their journey of faith in Jesus Christ brought them to a deeper understanding of that particular verse. And I, and Jim, what I've done this week, and Jim's joined us to uh, address some of the many questions we've received as a result of this new series, which is pretty exciting, Jim. Yeah, uh, there's... There's been quite a bit of interest. We've gotten emails, posts on Facebook and Twitter, <clears throat> people from not only in the United States. We got one gentleman who uh, contacted us from Paraguay. And maybe uh, this idea of hard verses has struck chord, because if anything, that is what divides us. Uh, amongst Christians, and maybe even what has driven many people from the church because of a difficult passage Mm -hmm. in Scripture. Uh, And I I must admit, there's lots of times when I'm in my morning devotions, I'm reading a passage, and uh, it's disturbing. Uh, Even sometimes the words of our Lord can come across as disturbing. Mm-hmm. How do you interpret them? How do you apply them to your life? How do they fit into theology? Um, almost to the point of, would I die for the interpretation <laughs> of this passage or not? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Th- that some of them are difficult. Uh, and so if we're putting our lives on the line for the interpretation of a passage, I need to make sure that my interpretation of the passage is based on reliable authority mm-hmm. and not merely my own interpretation. My own interpretation quite often can be very subjective. Uh, It depends on my own presuppositions, my own background, and my own knowledge of the context and the language that that the Scripture is presupposing. I don't know all that. I have to rely on others and other authority other than myself. Unfortunately, that's not the way a lot of people come at Scripture. A recent guest on The Journey Home, the program won't be broadcast until, I think, sometime in November, maybe December even. The end of November. Uh, The guest talked about how previously a deeply committed Christian, Mm -hmm. but his understanding of the faith came from a purely exegetical means of interpreting scripture and uh, with a concentration on the words down to parsing individual words and not so much the context really yeah and i remember that myself uh being taught that way in seminary and 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 enjoying you know studying the, the greek and the hebrew and using all the resources to come up with the perfect new, my new understanding of that scripture because I've come to a fuller understanding of a particular Greek word in a text. And this gentleman on the program talked about his whole world 
uh, was shattered when he also came to recognize the effects of his own sinfulness Mm -hmm. on his thinking and how we recognize that our thinking can be affected by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Mm-hmm. Our own flesh, through which we see Scripture, the the world's constant pressure on us to uh, bring to Scripture a, a variety of ideas, but also the devil, right. that silent voice that's there trying to either avoid a verse or to emphasize a verse or to see a verse through a different lens. And, and uh, also, too, I want to make something clear. We're not condemning exegetical work of Scripture offhand. I, there is a good use for it. It's part of our understanding of Scripture. And some of our listeners may not even know what the term exegesis means. The idea of the meaning of exegesis is to take Scripture or any document for that matter and pull try to pull out of it the meaning that is there now there's another term that is related to it that is much worse than if if i just went to the bible and read it exegetically there's worse ways of doing it there's another term called eisegesis eisegesis is when i have my own ideas my own thoughts that I've dreamed up, and I'm going to find my doctrine that, and read into. Eisegesis means to read into instead of read out of. And sadly... As you said, that can be used for all different kind of documents. And yeah. I mean, one thing comes to my mind is the, uh, the classic novel Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Mm-hmm. Well, when it talks about the main character and Queequeg in bed together. Yeah. When we use exegesis to understand what Melville was saying means that we look at that book in the context of the whole book, in the context of the time in which Melville was writing, his understanding of morality, what he could possibly have meant by that passage. Eisegesis is when we read into that passage our own ideas and particularly historicize it. We take today's understanding of morality, which in our culture has gotten pretty messed up in my view, Mm -hmm. but we read that back into a book that was written 150, 200 years ago. So I mean, the absurdity of that. Yeah, and then we we start thinking that more was going on in that bed than was. Right, that's eisegesis and the, the point of of our little introduction here is that when we look at a scripture, it, often the reason it's a hard verse is because are we interpreting the passage correctly, exegesis, mm-hmm. or are we reading it through our own lens, eisegesis, mm-hmm. just as you've, you've mentioned, Jim. But also it's more than just exegesis as our friend found out. Right, because when can we ever be sure, positive, mm-hmm. that we're not seeing something through the eisegesis of our own presuppositions, our own sinfulness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's always the danger. Right. Now, what Jim and I'd like to do today, because we've had so many questions, we want to take some time today to uh, address some of your questions. And let me begin by saying that we aren't pretending to be 
biblical scholars or presenting ourselves as such. We love the Lord Jesus and we love his word. And both Jim and I have been involved with scripture study for many years. I as a pastor, Jim as a, a, a seminarian. And um, what we really want to point out, maybe more than anything, is the validity of the questions that we've received mm-hmm. and how do you best approach coming to an answer to some of the questions. And before we begin, just one other thing, just a reminder that if you want more information about this program or to access past episodes of Deep in Scripture, go to deepinscripture.com. And we'd love to have your questions or your feedback, and you can do so via the website by sending an email to questions at deepinscripture.com or by finding us on Facebook or Twitter. All right, Jim, we've got a, a lot of emails today, but we'll just go through a few, and then mm-hmm. probably in a week or two we'll pick up on a few more. Here's one we received from a man named Joey, and he writes, uh, he's addressing the program that I did a couple weeks ago when I was on by myself reading a, a, a situation in the Old Testament, comparing it to a situation in the New. And Joey writes, heard before, Old Testament does not apply to us anymore, just the moral laws, right? So as gruesome as that story was, it's hard to use our understanding of justice. Now, on the other hand, Paul saying that it's okay to have divisions, doesn't that justify the Protestant point of view? And then doesn't that contradict with his letter to Timothy saying, this is how the church faithful should behave? Thanks and God bless. Jim, we need to unpack that email. Yes. Uh, because our audience may not know what we're referring to. A couple things. Again, in that program from a few weeks ago, in the Old Testament, I was, refer- I was referring to the Genesis 34 incident where it's called the revenge for the mistreatment of Dinah. And again, to give a summary They'll go back and listen to the program. Or go read Genesis 34. You really That's the better context. <laughs> but uh, a, a neighboring uh, prince essentially raped Dinah, uh, but then came to Jacob and said, I want to marry her. So Jacob and his son set some stipulations. Yeah. Qualifications, yeah. Which meant they had to be circumcised. And then while they were healing from being circumcised and therefore unable to defend themselves, the sons of Jacob murdered all the men of this neighboring community. And the the point was that the end of that chapter seems to justify Mm -hmm. their actions. And the question I posed was, how do we deal with that? Why was the story in the Bible? Was was its presence in the Bible, even just in Old Testament times, trying to justify that for the rape of a woman, you could therefore, by revenge, kill everyone? Was that the point of the passage? And I really don't think that that's what the point is about. Uh, the The scriptures are very blunt about our our spiritual ancestors, not Everything that happened in the Old Testament was the direct will of God. Obviously, it was all the passive will of God. He allowed it. But it's in there 
not necessarily to give us a pattern of how we should act, but to show our own sinfulness. There's another, uh, one other reference to a similar situation of how something happened in the Old Testament um, that um, obviously was not the direct will of God. This is another one of, I'll segue, one of our other questioners, Susan, um, wrote a question uh, from Judges 11, uh, verses uh, 30 through 40. This is a story of Jephthah. Jephthah was one of the judges in the time between the Exodus and uh, the coming of uh, the kingdom before Samuel and Saul. And he'd went out to battle um, the Ammonites, and he told God, if you give me victory, the first thing I see when I get home, I'll sacrifice to you. Well, the first thing he saw was his daughter. He felt obliged to fulfill his vow. Now, does that mean God wanted human sacrifice? No. It's showing us the how we should watch what we say, watch, filter our words maybe, uh, well, I was even going to say, Jim, that, that as you're explaining the passage, yeah. you're giving an interpretation. True, true. Okay. Well, it was too long a passage for me to read. No, no, no. But, <laughs> no, 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 but I'm not being critical of that. You're giving a good example of we feel an obligation to give an explanation. Right. Right. For any of these passages. And, and another one that came to my mind, the reason I had referred to that passage a couple weeks ago is with my morning devotions. Well, mm -hmm. Uh, in fact, this morning or a morning or two ago, I was continuing reading in Genesis. When I got to Genesis 38, it says it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned into a certain Edlamite, whose name was Hira. So in other words, Judah goes out and, and picks up a prostitute. Or Jacob, there's another passage here where Jacob, you know, he's an old man and he takes himself another wife. Uh you know, the, the point is, are these all, are they in the Bible? Mm -hmm. Therefore, that's inspired scripture. So that means that having many wives, as many examples of the Old Testament, we know that our Mormon brothers and sisters at one time took that as justification. Right. Um, and the, the point that I was making a couple weeks ago is why are these passages here? And in the big context of scripture, the continuity of the old to the new, points forward to the time when our Lord gives us the church to, to make sure that we understand the entire context of the Bible mm -hmm. within the rule of faith. And if anything, those Old Testament passages, one after another, paragraph after paragraph, emphasize that we needed a Spirit-led guide to the Word of God right. apart from ourselves. And maybe if I pull aside for a second, Jim, mm -hmm. um, this might be a good time to, as a comparison, now you were Methodist, I was a, a Calvinist, and what guided me in my interpretation as a Protestant pastor was the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was uh, a, a, a gathering of Scottish leaders, pretty sure they were Scottish and, and British. British, Scottish, it was during the Civil War, it was during Cromwell. Right, that's when it was, in about 1650 or so, right around Ironically, there. in a former 
Catholic monastery. Right. <laughs> Westminster Abbey. Here's how the Westminster Confession describes how to interpret the Bible, interpret a passage like this, or the ones Jim mentioned. In uh, chapter 1, paragraph 7, it says, The meanings of all the passages in the Bible are not equally obvious, nor is any individual passage equally clear to everyone. Now, on the side, I'm saying that's why there's hard verses. Right. That's the point. We read on. However, everything which we have to know, believe, and observe in order to be saved is so clearly presented and revealed somewhere in the Bible that the uneducated as well as the educated can sufficiently understand it by the proper use of the ordinary means of grace. Now, if that's true, that's the point. Look at the confusion. Mm -hmm. How do you interpret these very passages that Jim and I have mentioned? Mm -hmm. you know, do you find some other verse in the Bible to try and explain it? In fact, in paragraph 9, later in the Westminster Confession, it says the infallible standard for the interpretation of the Bible is the Bible itself. And so any question about the true and complete sense of a passage in the Bible, which is a unified whole, can be answered by referring to other passages which speak more plainly. Now, what's wrong with that, Jim? Well, the one thing that came to my mind when um, you were reading the, the last part about uh, the perspicuity of the Bible, basically, that's the technical term for it, is where in the Bible did they get that doctrine? Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that any place. Yeah, that is a tradition of mm -hmm. these English divines that had gathered and were setting standards based on standards they had received. So this was 1650. So these are based on standards that had been developing for the past 130 or so years mm -hmm. out of Germany originally right. and Switzerland from Luther and Calvin and the other reformers. And, and that last statement you said negates what they were saying because you've got Luther and Calvin. They couldn't agree with each other, but they both held to the same principle. So yep. what's wrong? Is there something wrong with them? Was one of them not truly following God or hearing God? Or is there something wrong with the presuppositions they have when they go to Scripture? Or is there something wrong with the Bible? Is there something yeah. wrong with the translation? A variety of issues. And those are all the questions that arise whenever you encounter problems in Scripture. Mm -hmm. An Old Testament passage, as our questioner uh, posed, well, we all know, is he saying that only the moral laws of the Old Testament hold and everything else doesn't apply to our lives? Uh, well, I'm not being critical of Joey by any means, mm -hmm. the point is, where do we get that from? Is there another verse in Scripture, going by the Westminster Confession, another verse in Scripture that clarifies that for these passages? Mm -hmm. And which verse do you use to clarify? Uh, let me give as a counter what the Catholic Catechism explains, in beginning with paragraph 112. This is how the Catholic Church understands the interpretation of Scripture. Of course, there's more here. But the three rules, first of all, that we are to be especially attentive to the content and unity of the whole Scripture. Mm 
And so in that sense, it agrees with, with the Westminster Confession, right. which in fact shows where the Westminster Confession got its idea, that the idea that the Bible was one inspired document, as the church has always held. It's full of documents that have different histories, but that the canon was brought together and has been recognized as one book guided by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. But the second rule is that we are to read the Scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. According to a saying of the Father, sacred Scripture is written principally in the church's heart rather than in documents and records, for the church carries in her tradition the living memorial of God's Word, and it is the Holy Spirit who gives her the spiritual interpretation of the Scripture. So in other words, which tradition are you following? And Jim, as you pointed out, Luther and Calvin couldn't agree. The Westminster Confession has a tradition that didn't come from Scripture itself. It's a tradition. Mm-hmm. So which tra- tradition are we going to use to look through to make sure that we're interpreting Scripture correctly? And then the third rule, it says in paragraph 114, is that we are to be tended to the analogy of faith. And by analogy of faith, we mean the coherence of the truths of faith among themselves and within the whole plan of revelation. And to me, that addresses an issue which, as we look at a number of these questions, and, and that is the idea that I go to the Bible first, that therefore to define, to determine what I believe. Mm-hmm. And that's backwards. Right. The Bible is a witness to what Christ, the church teaches we we don't extract every doctrine um, explicitly from the texts of the Bible. The Bible is a witness, and it backs up what the church has always taught. Now, someone listening may, might say, where'd you get this from? I mean, this is just you guys. No, this has been the teaching of the church from the beginning, and we can find plenty of references to this, and this is what makes sense when you read the writings of Augustine and any of the early fathers, that they are not going from the Bible alone to come mm-hmm. up with an idea of what they believe, but they go to it with the deposit of faith that they have received. And that they have received ultimately from Christ and the apostles. When we say um, um, the Bible must be read with the analogy of faith, we're basically we're saying it must be read in context. That context that is, it was written and it was presupposed by the writers was the church and the living life of the church that stems by the power of the Holy Spirit and is preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit from the apostles and from Jesus. So when we look at that passage in Genesis 34 about the revenge for the ill treatment of Dinah, we look at that story within the entire context of that chapter, mm-hmm. within the entire context of Genesis, within the entire context of the whole Old Testament, within the entire context of the entire scriptures, within the entire context of the sacred tradition that we've received mm-hmm. to make sure that our interpretation makes sense in the context of our faith. If it doesn't, we don't question our faith. We may say, I must be reading that passage wrong or I'm not hearing something clearly. And that brings us to the other part of his 
question when he's referring to 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. Again, that's a passage I discussed. And he was saying that doesn't this passage say that divisions in the church are okay? Mm-hmm. Doesn't this justify the Protestant point of view that all these divisions are somehow necessary? Jim, why don't you read that passage to give us the context? Yeah. This is 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Uh, What he he is saying, and this again is an example of God's permissive will. God isn't, Paul isn't saying this is a divine law that there must be factions among you. It's, he's saying, Basically, he's saying, there's going to be factions among you. You're sinful. We're all sinful. But God can use this for his greater glory and our good in that through divisions, through factions, and this has been a historical fact down through the ages, that God has used factions, and another translation of this word factions is heresies, Um to bring about the greater good. It's through, one best, best example, the Arian heresy. That faction brought about the definition of the Nicene Creed and our a better understanding of the inner workings of the divine trinity. God used Arius for the greater good. For that matter... God has used Satan for the greater good. He brought the fall of man. But from that, our salvation was won. When you read the writings of the early church fathers, whenever there's a question about an interpretation, when there are divisions, Mm -hmm. you'll find the early fathers saying, what is the teaching that connects to a church of the apostle. Right. Tertullian said that, Ignatius said that. Because Irenaeus that's... Irenaeus also. Irenaeus, the earliest fathers. In other words, the idea that our Lord, after his resurrection, he's meeting with the apostles for many days, that he's fulfilled to them a teaching, a mm-hmm. deposit of faith. The fullness has been handed over and Christ promises that they will receive the Holy Spirit to help them remember mm-hmm. this deposit of faith so they can protect it and proclaim it and pass it on. And then they themselves, uh, receiving the gift of the Spirit, we see in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost, as well as John 20, when, when Christ breathed the Spirit on them, then they appoint others. Mm-hmm to carry and proclaim this passage. And all through the book of Acts, we don't see any declaration for them to write anything down. It's a trust, a trusting of the tradition mm-hmm. that they are to preserve, it says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, or 1 Corinthians 11, all talk about holding on to that which you receive from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So in that sense... When the divisions rose in the second, third, and fourth centuries over something as important as the Trinity, 
It wasn't that all of a sudden the church had to sit down and define something. It had to work through all these conflicting voices to to decide what was the truth that's been handed on to us. And and it was uh, the obligation of the bishops of the church when a question was asked, in all good conscience, it had to be answered. So... Quite often, those questions hadn't come up before, so therefore they didn't have the an answer at first. But based upon the tradition that they had received from the apostles uh, and the fathers before them, they were able to answer the questions when they came up by the guidance of the Holy Spirit in continuity with the tradition that they had received. So there will be decisions, divisions in the... I mean, now we're, we're dealing with that mysterious work of God's grace uh, in, in our world, in mm-hmm. our church, in our lives. You know, the reality of sin, uh, yet the working of God's mercy, um, and the divisions that happen among us somehow, even the Reformation itself, mm-hmm. was uh, a part of God's mysterious plan. It may not have been his perfect will, but it was a, a part of what... We believe God was necessary for the renewal of the church. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, think about it in our own lives. Think about there are things that happen that force us to, to reexamine where we stand on something. And how important is that for us? We see it in our culture today. Mm-hmm. We see it when there are politicians that claim to be Christians or claim to be Catholic Christians and yet uh, compromise their values because they want to win votes, right? All right. So there's a division, and they're forced with, faced with a, dis, a, a decisive decision, and they compromise. And as Paul says, there's going to be divisions among us, but those divisions will help us determine which are true. Right. We'll see it to our day, Jim. Let's see if we can get at least one more in. We've we've gone over a little bit, but let's let's get one more. And I'd like to do the uh, address that. Uh, email that we received from Diego, uh, who was from Paraguay. And uh, Jim, if you could, why don't you go ahead and read his his question. Diego says, I have a question about the interpretation of a particular passage from the Bible. Would it be possible for you to address Ephesians 2, 8 through 9? And let me read that passage. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, It is a gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. And he goes on to ask, I understand the importance of faith and works for us Catholics, yet these verses seem a little confusing to me since faith appears to be given supremacy over works. Also, are these verses a foundation for the Protestant doctrine of sola fide? I constantly Oh, I, I constantly check your Facebook page. Thanks, Diego. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jim, maybe let me answer this one first, because probably given my background, this was more an issue for me than yeah. it was for you as a meth- former Methodist. Right. But yeah, certainly I preached on this passage many times and, and felt that it uh, fully grounded my uh, both Calvinist and Lutheran backgrounds, interpretation of justification, by grace through faith alone and not by works. That's how I interpret it because I assumed 
that in this passage, Paul is primarily speaking about the salvation that we have won through Christ, Mm -hmm. and that it isn't anything that we have done, but that by the grace that we've received, that mercifully therefore saved us. Even the faith itself is an outpouring of that grace. There's nothing that I can therefore can do to win salvation from God, and so it was right. a gift of grace. Well, actually, even the works are an outpouring of grace. Right. I mean, that's. But I understood that there's nothing I could do to earn it, mm-hmm. and therefore there's nothing I can do to lose it, because it was all a gift of grace, and that comes from Luther, mm-hmm. comes from Calvin, though they see it slightly different, but. You know, is that what this passage says? And the truth is, again, when you look at a passage, you've got to look at the passage in the wider context. I mean, it's like a a ripple in a, you throw a rock in a river and you see these layers of ripples. Well, they're mm-hmm. all the circle of context around a passage. So to interpret that passage correctly, you have to interpret it in terms of the entire chapter two of Ephesians, in in terms of entire book of Ephesians, in terms of the entire New Testament, in terms of the teachings not just of Paul, but of John and Peter and James and our Lord Jesus, and then in the context of the wider tradition of the church, and not the other way around. And mm-hmm. that so often is the case. And you know, the danger is when you look at this passage, it is a person interpreting it through their traditional lenses. And where did those traditions come from? The context of this passage, if you back up to the beginning of chapter 2, Paul is addressing Christians. He's addressing dressing mostly Gentile converts. New converts, too. New converts, and basically a a way of understanding the entire book of Ephesians is recognizing that chapters 1 through 3 are basically saying what happens when you're baptized, mm-hmm. when you've been brought into the faith and you're baptized, you've received the anointing. In fact, it says in chapter 1, verse 13, in him you also who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So in other words, they've been baptized. Mm -hmm. They heard, someone told them the gospel, they responded by grace, they were given the act of faith, and they came into the community and they were baptized. And now they're different, they're new creations, they're a part of the body of Christ. All of that is the first three chapters of Ephesians. The second three chapters of Ephesians, verses chapters 4 through 6, are about, okay, now that you've been baptized, you've been brought into the church, now you've got to live differently. You can't live the way you used to live. In the context of that understanding, Ephesians 2.8 is not primarily about the salvation we may or may not experience when we die. Mm-hmm. He's talking about a present reality for these people. The fact that previously they were lost in paganism, lost in fornication, lost in sinfulness, had no idea of God, had no desire for God, they were lost. And what Paul is saying is that the reason that God saved you from that is not because while you were lost, all of a sudden you started doing good things. 
good works while you were yet a pagan. And because you did those good works, therefore God saved you. No, it had nothing to do with your lifestyle. But while you were completely lost, God in his love, because of what Christ did on the cross, by his grace, reached back, plucked you out of that environment, gave you the gift of faith. You responded with your will to God by that grace, and now you are here in the church. And what are you to do now? You are to live accordingly, which is why he says, he says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. Again, not because of anything you did back then when you were lost. But verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That's what chapter four through six is about. Right. These are the good works that we are to do by grace through faith, but they are an expression of gratitude and obedience to God that plucked us out while we were lost and now are found. And I don't know about you, Jim, but that describes my life. Yeah. Because I was lost mm -hmm. back in fraternity days. <laughs> and it wasn't because of anything good I happened to be doing when I was lost in my fraternity life. From your stories, there wasn't a whole lot of good that you were doing. I, oh, it, it, <laughs> so there was, yeah, it wasn't because of that. It's not like I, God felt obligated because of some good thing that I did to therefore reward me with salvation. It was totally his grace, totally his mercy. Even the awakening within my own mind was a gift of grace to help me respond to him. Yeah. And the, the same with me. Nothing that we do before grace contributes to our salvation. But through grace, after our conversion, after we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and washed in the waters of regeneration, then by grace, God uses our works to further our sanctification and salvation, drawing us more deeply into the life of Christ with him. Yeah, to these same people that Paul is writing in Ephesians 2, later in Ephesians 4, he, excuse me, Ephesians 5, he will say, excuse me, Ephesians 4, <laughs> beginning verse 17. Now this I affirm and testify in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. You did not so learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new nature. The, the point here Paul is, Paul is saying is that on the one hand, it is totally grace mm -hmm. through faith, not because of what we did back then, but because by God's love and mercy should drive us to our knees. This is what he has done. But on the other token, we we freely received. We weren't robots. Mm -hmm. When he opened our minds to see Jesus, to hear the story of Christ, to understand God's love 
for any of us, we still freely are called to respond. That's why Paul uses the, uh, the, the, the kind of verbs that he uses in verse 22. Put off your old nature. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new nature. That requires an act of the will in responding. Yes. Now, the act of the will is, is not a work. It is a, a response to grace that in itself comes from grace. Yes, and it, it another term for it that he used at the beginning and the end of his letter to the Romans is the obedience of faith. We are called to be obedient to God's grace. It's all God's grace, but we still have free will to respond, and he therefore then works through us. Again, it's the Catholic concept of both and, and our Protestant brothers and sisters always want, not always, but often want either or. Yeah, and I... You know, hearing it through the ears that I had for so many years as a as a Presbyterian, first a Lutheran, then a Presbyterian, um, it, it, I could almost be hearing what we're saying as, as denial of so much of what we believe. No, it's not. It, it's not an either or. It's a both and. We're we're not saying that Catholics believe that we're saved by our works. We're not, but we are saved through the grace that we've received in our response by that grace. Faith is not merely a mental concept, a mental acceptance of God. Faith is all that we are, body and soul, everything, mm -hmm. which involves humility, involves repentance, involves obedience, it involves suffering, it involves all of that, regardless of whatever comes our way, to accept that at the hands of God and, and, and to continue following him. Uh, you know, the truth is, Paul's writing that letter to fairly new Christians. Mm -hmm. Their lives aren't going to get easier. No. As you grow in the faith year after year, you might figure, well, someday it's going to get really easy. No, it may get more difficult because God wants you to grow deeper. Sometimes, as John of the Cross said, that might involve a dark time mm -hmm. when you feel very far from God. How are you going to respond? And so you have that both and, the work of grace, but the freedom of our will to respond. And so obedience is, isn't merely like a, a marionette just letting the strings uh, do whatever God wants us to do. We always have the freedom to turn away, which is why Paul in the second half of Ephesians is constantly telling them, okay, you're new people in Christ. Now you've got to act it. Right. You've got to live it out. Jim, thank you for joining us today. I think we better pause a bit on this program and uh, allow our what viewers, listeners we have to take a breath. <laughs> uh, just a reminder that we want to hear from you. You can email us at questions at deepinscripture.com or leave us a voicemail question or a comment by clicking the button at deepinscripture.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Let me also remind you that Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network, a network of Christian men and women who, in their walk with Christ, found themselves drawn to embrace the Catholic Church. Wherever you may be on your own Christian journey, we invite you to walk, to learn, to pray with us. So visit us at chnetwork.org uh, to connect with us. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of Deep in Scripture. Next time, we'll be talking with Paul Thigpen. He's a prolific author, especially recently of his book, Spiritual Warfare. So God bless you. See you again next week.